Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Pam Smith. This episode is actually going to be paired with another one. It's going to be a two-parter with Pam Smith. This first one, we are going to cover her career as an ultra marathon runner. And in the second one, I'm going to bring her and my wife, Nicole on, and we're going to break down in a deeper dive into her historic performance at the 2013 Western States 100, where she not only battled some of the hottest temps that that course has offered over the years, but managed to win and finish ninth overall that year. So one thing that made that particular win kind of historic, in my opinion, is it came off the back end of a prior year where she had to gut out a tough finish, barely actually finished under the cutoff. At Western States, there's a strict 30-hour cutoff. So if you cross that finish line in 30 hours and one seconds, you do not receive a finish. Pam finished that year in 28 hours and I think like 55 minutes. So she was just over an hour ahead of the, the cutoff. And then the following year came back and won it and then finished ninth overall out of everyone in the race. So it was quite a turnaround from one year to the next. And she has been uh, open about kind of how big and strategic that training approach was for that year. And I want to know more. So Nicole and I are going to chat with her specifically about that in the follow-up. But for this one, we're going to dive into Pam in general. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Pam in the first place is she is very multidimensional within the ultra running world. I've mentioned this before, but ultra marathon running is really just a big umbrella over a lot of long distance races from 50 kilometers, basically up to an endless number of miles or kilometers or time you want to look at. It's the options are endless. The train is endless. There's so much variety. It's almost silly that we consider it all one sport. So when you have people that are able to do a huge variety within this successfully, that catches my eye because we've gotten to a point in this sport where it is competitive enough where a lot of times, if you want to find yourself on podiums, you have to be somewhat selective of your target from both a duration standpoint, as well as a environment standpoint to really fine tune the skills required to be good enough at those in order to find yourself beating the vast majority of people or finding yourself on a podium. So just a quick rundown of why Pam fits that bill of multidimensional. Some of her highlights over her career include she's been second and third at the highly competitive Bandera 100 kilometer. She's been second at the American River 50 mile. She's been 10th twice, fourth once, and first once at the Western States Endurance 100 mile, which has gone back and forth between the most and second most competitive 100 miler on the planet over the years. She's been second at the historic JFK 50 mile, first at Gorge Waterfalls. She's both won and become runner up at the Mad City 100 kilometer, which hosts the USATF 100 kilometer road championships. She's won the Miwok 100 kilometer. She's been fifth and 10th at the world championship 100 kilometer distance. She's gotten fifth at the highly competitive run rabbit run hundred miler. She logged 14 hours and 11 minutes for hundred miles at the desert solstice track invitational. She won the Angeles crest hundred mile and set a course record there on a year where, well, it's always relatively hot there. Now, the reason a course record at Angeles crest in the modern era is an eye catcher is that event 
has switched dates from its earlier years. So now it's just much harder to run that course than it would have been prior to that date switch since it got moved back into the heat of the summer to some degree. Also, she's been both fifth and fourth at the 24-hour world championships, logging 151.380 miles on her fifth place finish and 152.6991 for her fourth place finish. The women's USA 24-hour teams, since I've been in the sport, have been producing some very highly competitive fields, uh, and Pam's been part of that. So to go along with all that stuff, she's also battled the heat at the Badwater 135 and gotten second and third place there as well. So that's just a snippet of the things that Pam has done. If you're interested, you can check out her ultra signup page and see the long list of different races between 50 kilometers and 24 hours and everything in between that she has done over the years for this particular episode, other than jumping into some of those performances, I talked to Pam about a bunch of different topics, including her her massive range within the sport, her fueling strategy, both out of competition and in competition to get herself ready for these type of things, stories of overcoming both mental and physical hurdles, managing career and family while training and racing as Pam Smith has been a professional. Uh, she's actually a doctor and you know she hasn't stepped away from that in any large capacity throughout the majority of her career. So she's definitely juggled a lot with her family, her career, as well as getting in that training and racing all around the world. Uh, And then ultimately how she manages heat. We're going to dive into this one in a little more detail, probably on the Western States episode, since that was a big factor on that particular day. But I was interested in kind of just broaching that topic to some degree with Pam while I had her on for this first time around. So hopefully you enjoy this episode with Pam. She is what I would consider maybe one of the more underrated uh, ultra marathon athletes that we have available to us that has the resume that she does that, like I said, branches that wide scope of stuff. So it was fun to try to highlight some of her achievements over, over this episode. Before we welcome Pam on the show, just a few quick announcements. If you are looking for some coaching support, I have a wide range of options on my website, zachbitter.com. With those options include pre-made plans that follow my philosophy and they range from five kilometers up to a hundred miles. There's multiple levels to pick from, whether you're a beginner or advanced. And I also have a strength athletes endurance guide, which is essentially a training plan for strength athletes who want to dip their toe into some endurance events or some endurance training without necessarily stepping out of the gym altogether. So if something like that fits your needs, head over to zachbitter.com to check that out. There you'll also find my individualized coaching packages, which allow you to work with me one-on-one. And those can tier all the way up to quite frequent communication if you're interested in uh, learning from me and working with me on that front. Also, if you just want to bounce some ideas off me, ask some questions, dive into some specific topics one-on-one, you can also sign up for consultations over there at zachbitter.com. If you want to support the podcast, there are a few ways to do that as well. I have a show Patreon page where I'll upload the episodes as soon as I'm done recording them and they are intro ad free. So it gets right to the point. If you want to support the show and access that audio file, you can do that by joining the show Patreon page links to the show's Patreon page can be found at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO on that same landing page. You will also find the full catalog of all the previous episodes along with the show details and notes and things that come along with it. So if you're interested in checking out the backlog of episodes and finding some episodes you maybe didn't hear that you want to check out, that's a great 
place to check them out. There's also other support options on there. If you're not into Patreon and you want to help out the show, but ultimately one of the big things you can do to help me grow this show is to just share it, like it, subscribe to it, let your friends, family know, post the episodes you enjoy on social media so others can find out about the topics and conversations we have here on the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Finally, also, if you want to meet up in person, I host a group run in Austin, Texas. We meet at 9 a.m. on Sundays at Metz Park. Details to that can be found at Outliers ATX on Instagram. We have a variety of different options. Everyone's welcome. There's a walk option. There's run options. We've got a four-mile loop, a six-mile loop, and a two-and-a-half-mile out and back that is usually used for walking. But you can bring a stroller. You can bring your pet dog. You can bring the family. We are going to find a spot for you there if you show up and want to get some exercise in on a Sunday morning and hang out for a little bit. So uh, head over to at OutliersATX on Instagram for details on that for any given week. Before we get rolling, just a quick shout out to one of the show's primary sponsors this year, Element T Electrolytes. They are my go-to electrolyte supplement. They make a very convenient product that has these little packets that include 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Last year, I got my sweat test done, and it turns out I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes for every liter of fluid lost during a workout or throughout the day. So I'll usually mix one of those packets in about two liters of water. If I'm going out for training sessions, I'll also use their chocolate flavor sometimes in the morning with my coffee. It makes a perfect mix if I use like maybe half a packet of that, some coffee, some heavy cream, hits the spot, sends me out to my morning session, ready to roll. Uh, they are currently running a special for HPO podcast listeners, which is a free sample packet with any purchase. So if you go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO, you will be prompted to receive that free sample pack with your first purchase. So what that allow you to do is figure out First of all, if you enjoy the product, and second of all, which flavor is your favorite? My favorites right now, chocolate with that coffee in the morning and watermelon for any of my fluids that I'm drinking throughout the day or out on workouts. So if that's any help for you, those would be a good starting points in my opinion. So head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO to check out their stuff. You can also access those links in the show notes or on the show sponsor website, which is zachbitter.com dot com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm joined today by one of the legends of the sport and probably one of the widest reaching resumes you'll find in terms of being able to execute on different trains, distances, and the whole thing that makes altering what it is. Pam, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think this will be a fun one to chat about. And I know, um, the listeners will be aware we're going to do essentially a two-part for this recording because one of your race results that I was is mind-boggling to me for a variety of reasons was your Western States 100 when you you won and finished ninth overall on a year where it was relative. Well, I shouldn't say relative. I think it was historically hot for the most part, right? Wasn't that one of the hottest years that they've had? I think it was the second or third hottest year at the time, at least. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, what makes that course so unique is just the varying terrain across it. It's essentially like three different 50 Ks. And then you also get 
possibly extreme weather variants too, or some years you can have snow in the high country and then blazing hot temperatures in the Canyon. So I think it really does expose everyone's strengths and weaknesses or makes your mistakes show a little bit more than maybe other courses do. So we're going to do a deep dive into kind of your preparation for that and then race execution as well on a different podcast. So maybe we'll stay away from that one a little bit today. Uh, so we don't spill the beans, so to speak, but, uh, I do want to just chat about kind of your career in ultra running in general and just kind of everything that kind of went into it. Because when I think of ultra running now, I mean, one of the questions I guess I usually get is just like, what is an ultra marathon, uh, or people want to just call it an ultra marathon. And really it's just like a ton of different sports all bundled under that umbrella. At this point, very few people are able to kind of like really excel at the polar ends of that. Uh, you stand out as someone who's, who's managed to do that with, uh, you know, competing on the world hundred K team, flat runnable, hard surfaces. And then like Angela's crest is a very challenging course, hundred mile race trails, a lot of climbing and descending and things like that. So I'd love to dive into just kind of like your approach to the sport. What kind of got you interested in it in the first place? Uh, yeah, I mean, I actually did my first ultra by accident. I was training for the Boston Marathon in Portland and um, it was crappy weather. I had a long run on my schedule and I didn't know how I was going to get it in. I wasn't very motivated. And there was a five hour race that was um, just very, very close to my house. It was just a loop um, timed race and on a two mile trail loop. And I thought, oh, I'll just go down there and see what I can do. Um, and so that was kind of like my first ultra. I ended up running 32 miles there and, uh, it was fun, you know, put, put that down, but then I didn't really think much about it. Um, and I didn't, uh, then kind of didn't really get back into ultra running and until 2008. And, uh, there was a lot going on between 2002 and 2008. Um, I was completing my residency, passing boards, starting my first, um, job as a, you know, a, a full-time physician. And I also, um, had two kids in that period. So my running in that five years was kind of, um, non-competitive and, and more recreational. And then when I came back after having my second kid, I really wanted to get back into the marathon and I kind of was pulling my hair out to get a PR. And um, when I finally did, I was like, I was so stressed out by like a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there. I just wanted to try something different. And so I signed up for a 50K and um, just was really um, thrilled with the training and um, with the trail racing and the community there and um, met some people who were really eager to bring me in and have me run with them. And so kind of just exploded from there under their tutelage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You reminded me of something I wanted to talk to you about as well, which, uh, is just the balance that this sport can have or can't have, I guess, depending on how you look at it, where when I first did my first ultra marathon was in 2010 and I could probably think of maybe a few people that I was aware of that were like doing it in any way professionally in the sense that they didn't really have to do anything other than train and race. And, and you know, even back then it was probably like, they were probably living pretty modestly in order to do so. So making some sacrifices, the sports obviously grown since then. And now you see a lot more people doing it as kind of their sole directive more or less. And I'm just kind of curious about that because like, I think of people like yourself, um, uh, my wife, Nicole, who's got a very busy career outside of training and racing. And there seems to be kind of like a personality thing here too, where having a job or a different kind of directive that's 
very different from the sport itself that kind of almost gives you like an outlet or pulls away. I can see as maybe being something that is beneficial for some people. Do you find that to have been the case for you? Or did you, do you think back and think like, man, if I could have had like a five-year stretch where I was just sitting there and training, racing and doing everything I could around racing, it would have been better for you? Or do you think you would overthought it? No, I actually think, I I mean, I just listened to the podcast that you did after Bandera with Nicole, and she kind of talked about how she needed her job. And I think that was for me too. You know, Mm -hmm. I was never a professional runner. Like my major sponsor was my job, you know? And so that's how I made my my money. So in some ways that took a lot of pressure off of my racing because I I was doing it for me and my own accomplishment. Like I didn't have any sponsors that I needed to please in terms of like keeping my livelihood. But I think for me also the job made it so that I had to be very disciplined with my training. Like I only had a certain amount of time, um, in which I could run. And that's for me was early in the morning. And so it forced me to get up and get my run done every morning. Um, and I think with more flexibility and more freedom, I actually would have floundered a little bit with that and been like, Oh, when should I go? When should I not go? And then once you get into the late afternoon, sometimes, um, you start to erode what your original plans were like, Oh, I don't need to do 10 today. Maybe I'll do five or maybe I can just go tomorrow. Today will be my off day or something like that. And, um, I was also really fortunate in that I had people to with in the morning. So that kept me accountable. And I think if I was by myself, like I probably wouldn't have the discipline to get up at four 30 in the morning. If I didn't have a job, um, I would have just been sleeping through it. And then in which case, then I think my training would have suffered because I wouldn't have had the people to run with either. Yeah. Yeah. There's the community aspect too. Cause like you're with like the other runners who are also likely heading to their job afterwards too. You don't yep. kind of feel like you're kind of out on an Island. I know when I was teaching, I learned from that experience that doing nothing but training and racing was never going to be a, an ideal option for me. Cause I'd have, you know, 12 weeks every year in the summer where I was essentially like off and I could live like a professional athlete for those three months. And every time I get like maybe 10 weeks into it and just start thinking like, I need something else here. So like, to me, when I did step away from teaching, I knew like, first of all, I didn't step away thinking like, all right, I'm going to even give pure professional running a shot. Cause I already knew ahead of time, I need to have other, other irons in the fire, so to speak, if I want this to be meaningful. And like you said, like there's a certain amount of running that you, if you exceed, you're probably going to just dig yourself in a bigger hole. And if you're someone who's typically likes to be busy, you're going to overdo it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. So one, I think the first time I actually met you in person was at uh, the Mad City 100K in 2014. I believe we were both trying to get ourselves a spot on the World 100K team that year. And you were coming off, if I remember right, your Western States win from the prior year. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's the first time I thought about it. Was just like, because Western States is my first 100 miler and I got kind of uh, an eye-opening experience in the sense that it was like, a much different course than I'd ever run on. I was living in the Midwest at the time and then also a much different distance. So I knew enough at that point to know like how big of a difference it was to kind of prepare for a fast 10 loop hundred K on the roads versus, you know, the Western States 100 and things like that. So I want to dive in a little bit, like what was your kind of training approach back then in terms of getting ready for, uh, I guess, essentially a 12 month period where you were going to do something like Western States and then, um, not that long after be on the starting line of a hundred K road race. 
Yeah. I mean, I think um, just because it necessitated it from work and stuff that I did a huge amount of my daily training on roads, um, you know, to get to good trails for me is about a 20 to 25 minute drive. And I just didn't have that extra commute time during the week. So I was doing my bulk of my weekday training on the road. So I kind of was always, I guess, road fit or road prepared. And then just for um, something like Western States, I would um, either add more hill repeats um, during in during the week in town, and then obviously doing the long runs out on the um, on the trails and making sure I got my long runs and my trail mileage on the weekends. Um, but I always kind of had the philosophy that like the overarching thing that I wanted for my training was just getting as fit as possible. And that race specificity was kind of a very minor component of that, you know, maybe 10, 15% and just being like very fit and doing whatever I could be fit. And in that way you could kind of shift between races pretty easily. If you're at a certain degree of fitness, yeah, you might need to do a little bit more speed for a road work. You might need to do a little bit more trail for a trail race, but like you still have that base fitness that can carry you through any of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think if you, I always kind of say it like this, like if you're really fit, just kind of within the running world, I guess, then you're probably like six to eight weeks out from just getting specific with your long run. And unless yeah. it's a course that has like super technical descending and you're like me and you're terrible at that, you probably can pretty much get ready for it. And then if you, if it is something like that, where there's like a technical component, it's like maybe just start practicing that on, on the side a little earlier too. So you're not trying to make up, make up a big weakness at the very end. But yeah, generally I think that's, that's, that's kind of the, what makes the sport a little bit unique is you, you, the, the intensity, even with the shorter races, like a hundred K is still low enough where, uh, you, you can do a lot with just basic fitness and then a kind of short, short peaking phase. Yeah. So I am exactly like you. I, I hate the technical downhills. I'm terrible at it. I'm a big chicken, so I don't ever like to run it very fast. And even with like specific training, I never really got better for that. I mm -hmm. just knew that I could like mitigate it and manage it as much as possible. And then I would just try to get better at the other stuff. And like, I really, I like the uphill. I like hiking. I, um, and then obviously, um, even in courses like Angeles Crest or Western States, you get to sections that are very runnable. And so to have the legs, and the turnover from the road running stuff was always a benefit, even for the trail races. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, one kind of more specific question about training I want to ask you about is just the long run. Cause this has been one where I think has been a, a topic most recently too, Yeah. with like uh, all the way to like Camille saying like, Hey, just ditch it all together, which is a little um, maybe sensational to say it like that. Cause I think for one, she's doing a fair bit of racing. So she's kind of doing some really long, long runs just within that. And then it's, she's not ditching it all together. It's just, she's not really doing the, the back-to-back -back long run stuff or like the 30 mile long runs. I think she captures at like 22 or something like that. Um, how do you see the long run in terms of the puzzle of I'm starting a plan for this race? Uh, let's say like maybe four months or 16 weeks out. Do you stay away from it early and kind of develop it a little bit? and then lean into um, it at the end? Or how do you structure that? I mean, I think 
just going back to the thing that Camille says, I think she's she's glossing over some major elements of her training. One, she's running two to three times a day, almost every day. And for a lot of people that are not professional runners, they don't have the time for that. Like, I don't have the time for that. I know for sure. Um, and she's also doing about 120 miles, 100, <laughs> 100 to 120 miles per week. So the volume is super, super high. So, I mean, she is still getting quite a large number of miles um, on both a daily and a weekly basis. Basis. So um, I I do think that the long run doesn't need to be astronomically long. I never did more than a 50K as a training run distance. Um, I just think it was too fatiguing and more than I needed. Um, I just needed to know that I had the confidence in my legs. My legs were going to carry me through whatever distance it was. And somewhere around 28, 25, 28 um, was a good mileage for me that I felt like I could do if I did that two or three times or maybe four times leading up to a race. So I just would try to build my long run over the weekends, you know, like, uh, or over the week. So, you know, starting out however many weeks out, you know, you're starting at 15 and then maybe the next weekend is 18 and 20 and then kind of just building it up until you get two or three of those big long runs. Um, for me having a family, I just, I couldn't, have myself doing back-to-backs on the weekend. So I was never a back-to-back runner. Um, I usually took Sundays as an off day because that was one day that I just knew that I could like then have that with my family. And my husband used to do some running and stuff too. And then that was also a place where he could have some space to do his training. Um, And so like Saturday and Sunday just didn't work for me to do the back-to-backs. I did try to get what I used to call a midweek medium, which was like 12 to 15 miles on a Wednesday. So so I'd kind of do like a medium distance one on a Wednesday and then my longer run, um, like I said, up to 30 miles or so on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. How many races do you typically do per year? Like non-pandemic year, obviously it's been a little weird <laughs> the yeah, last couple I of years. Mean, I, was, I was probably a pretty high volume racer. Um, I used to do probably six to eight, but a lot of those being 50 Ks that I would use as sort of the training run. I really used to love a 50 K four weeks out. So from a big race doing a 50 K four weeks out. Um, and, and then, you know, so if you do two or three of those as training runs, then the rest of them is probably like only three or four big A races a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like really when this topic comes up, I always think to myself like, well, we, we really need to define long run before we even engage with this topic, because like there's long running for like a marathon where the intent is a lot of people are going to run the entire way versus a long run specific to say a hundred mile race. Like when I'm coaching people, I prescribe it as like target the intensity you're planning on doing on race day. And that kind of gives it a little bit of a, like a little bit of a different look. Cause it's like, when we start looking at the physiology of running development, you get this two, three hour range before that quality or the, the benefits you're getting to really start to taper off. But if I'm working with someone who's going to do like a 50, 50 split from run and hike, it's like hiking is going to be a really valuable tool that they're going to want to have and be practicing it to some degree. And it also kind of gives us an opportunity to do maybe a little bit longer long run, but let's make sure we're not just hammering it and trying to run the whole time. So if it's like four or five hours, then let's aim to run half of that, but also make sure you're breaking it up with some hiking breaks and getting really specific to the race itself. Yeah. 
Um, I, I always think of my best race effort actually as being the, um, 2019, 24 hour worlds. And, um, my last long weekend leading up to that was a three day, um, circumnavigation of the wonderland trail where wow. we were doing about 30 miles a day, but it was taking us like 10 hours to do those 30 miles because, you know, we were walking, we're sightseeing, we're filtering water, we're doing all those things, but it was a lot of time on my feet. And I just think that that low, like you're saying that low intensity, but like uh long duration was actually extremely helpful for getting me ready for 24 hours. So, um, I've always liked when I've had some sort of adventure where yes, you're getting the miles in, but you're also like, you're saying, staying at a much more controlled and, um, recreational pace. Mm -hmm. That's funny. You said that. Cause I remember I had like an epiphany at a 50 miler one year, I think it was in 2012, maybe 2013, somewhere around that time frame, because I had done, I hadn't really done a lot of, I think I've only done one, one or 200 milers at the time. So my mindset perspective was more around the 50 mile distance. And I did this bike trip where it was essentially like a bike camp type setup. And we were biking like 12, sometimes 14 hours for three days in a row, I think. And I mean, it was like, obviously low impact. We were on bikes. We were going really slow. We were carrying like camping gear and packs and things like that. And there was really no incentive to push, push really hard. And so it was just a total like mind exercise of like dealing with the boredom and the monotony of being on that bike all day, going through like the typical like highs and lows that you have to kind of just convince yourself. All right, we're halfway there. Don't think about the end. Just let's get to that next spot. And that sort of a mentality. And then I remember racing the 50 miler, my next 50 miler and thinking, wow, that went by so fast. <laughs> it was, I couldn't believe it. So from like a mental hack standpoint, I think like that, what you described with the Wonderland trail, I'm sure was just like something that made that 24 hour just feel like I can actually wrap my head around this. Yeah. Was that the one that you'd hit 152 miles at? 153. 53. Okay. Well, I don't want to cheat you out any miles. I know how hard those last ones can be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Yes, I was. Awesome. Yeah. That's uh. I mean, when you think of like just the women's 24 hour teams and that in general, that's been something that I think I find really interesting about the sport or storyline along the sport too, because uh, it seems like a lot more of the top, the top women in the sport have taken a, taken a swing at the 24 hour versus the men. We're starting to see, we've seen some, some good men's runners enter the 24 hour for sure, but it seems like the women have done it in groups to the extent where sometimes there's like you know, three or four people there that are capable of hitting a number close to like 150. And then in some cases, even well beyond that. So I'd love to hear like, what's been your experience with the 24 hour and maybe a follow-up question, like how is like the team atmosphere when you have that level of competition within the team kind of change the dynamic? Yeah. I mean, um, the 24 hour has been amazing. And uh, from a mental standpoint, I really think it's the hardest race that I've ever done because I, I mean, you just have this major, uh, like incentive to stop or slow down because the time passes. So actually the harder you run, the more you're going to have to run. Whereas, you know, these races that have a distance, you kind of have an incentive to go a little faster because that's what gets the race over faster. Um, but 
It's been amazing. I think one thing that's great about the 24 hour racing is the team aspect of it because you're allowed to run with other runners on your team. And so over 24 hours, you know, people are going to go through different highs and different lows and, you know, they can come back at different times and stuff. So you can actually really use somebody on your team to run with and to pace with and to strategize with. And so I think it, it really has a more of a team feel I've, I've paced a little bit with people at the 100k but for the most part you kind of know what pace you personally want to run and if that doesn't match up with somebody on your team you're kind of on your own um to run it and so um of course you feel like the team you've got the same kit and you know you you're running under the the u.s banner and everything but the 24 i think just because everybody's going through that and and of course um you know the suffering is uh more extreme in 24 hours for the most part and uh, <laughs> misery loves company yeah. you know there's a lot more stories to tell afterwards and stuff about what was going on. So I think people get pretty bonded on the, on the 24 hour team. Yeah, for sure. I would think, I would think too, I know like I've failed epically at the 24 hour to date, but it's definitely a, an event I'm interested in. And I hope to solve at some point in my career, but uh, I would think like having the team atmosphere would maybe, obviously you have to do well enough to get on the team to begin with. So you have to figure something out, but then knowing that like you're part of something bigger than just like Oh, if I blow this up, it's just, you know, my loss or, you know, I guess you have crew maybe too, that you could potentially be upsetting for taking yeah. their time and things like that. But generally speaking, um, yeah, the incentive to, to pull out of a 24 hour, things aren't going well, are pretty unique for my experience. I think having that team atmosphere would, would add that element of avoiding that sort of a mindset. Yeah. I, I mean, the biggest example to me was Courtney DeWalter in 2019, and she started having a hip injury and a lot of hip pain. And, uh, you know, like probably from her perspective, she, I mean, she wasn't going to hit her PR. She wasn't going to hit the goals that she wanted, but she toughed through so much pain and so much injury and potentially setting herself back from other races that she had, but knowing that she was kind of our third scorer and we really needed her. And if she hadn't continued on that race to sort of limp through and push through that pain, we would not have come home with the gold medal. And I think that if she was there as an individual, she probably wouldn't have felt that same um, desire. And so like props to her for, for putting up and going for that. And like the team, team USA owes her a lot for, you know, pushing through that pain when she's, she's really injured, you know, everybody's mm -hmm. going through pain, but when you're, you're dealing with injury, I think a lot of times, especially for elite runners, it, the idea is like, wait, I don't, I don't want to set myself back too much, but with the team effort on the line, I think people are willing to push, put a little bit more out there. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Courtney's an interesting, I mean, she's kind of like yourself where seems like doesn't really matter the distance, the train she's going to excel at it. And, uh, she actually got into some of the 24 hour stuff a little bit earlier in her career and hasn't really revisited it yet. So I would, I would love for her to just at some point say, all right, I'm going to give this another, another chance. Cause I think she could put up some world-class numbers and that event. If, if things lined up, right. As, as the leader of team USA, me too, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause what was her, I think it was like her second 24 hour where she ran her, what was it? She ran like a hundred and uh, 156 or 157 or something like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know where, um, in her career, she like how many she had done before that, but, um, yeah, it was definitely before she was doing quite as many of the rugged, um, hundred mm -hmm. mile trail race stuff. 
Yeah, I guess it, for it's got to be hard. This is a good question for you too, in terms of just what do you do? Because it is one of those sports where it's like, you kind of, I see it as a positive and negative for one. If you get like sick or tired of a specific aspect of the sport, it's not like I need time away from the sport always. I mean, sometimes it is, but other times it's just, I need to change what I'm preparing for to mix it up a bit. Uh, but when you are you know good at all of it, how do you go about kind of picking a schedule and deciding what you want to do? Is it based on kind of what you're interested in at the moment? I mean, for me, it absolutely was, you know, I, I want to be super excited for races and I have, I mean, I'm, I'm not somebody that takes DNF lightly, but I've definitely had a few in my career and it's almost always been races where I get to the starting line and I'm not even like super excited the day this, like the moment the race started starts. And so then it's easy to say, well, why am I here? I don't need to be here stuff. So like, yeah, I want to pick the races for me where I'm like a little bit scared, (laughs) super excited and just like really motivated to train for it. Um, I think with athletes now, it's a little bit different because I think sponsors are dictating where people go and what races they can do. And so it makes it a little bit harder for people to choose a particularly like you're saying between, you know, a rough, a rugged mountain race and a 24 hour and these kind of things, um, because they have the sponsorship deals and because that's what their livelihood is coming from. So, um, I, I don't, I don't really know. I think, I think sponsored athletes maybe are a little bit more restricted in, in where they can go. And, um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I could see that. I think I've been really fortunate with that. I haven't had a lot of pushback in terms of, outside of just being curious, like, what are you planning on doing this year type of a mentality? And um, usually I've to date, I've been able to get away with kind of saying, this is the first half of the year, which I should probably know at that point, because I'm going to start preparing for it, and then have a little bit of a looser second half of the year. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, I, I know there are some some sponsors who are a little more, they'll look at your race plans as before they even sign you in, because they want to make sure they're you know, doing the the races that they see as an ROI for them, which, yeah, that would be a, that would maybe be for me personally, probably a little bit of a deterrence to partner with a brand personally, just because, um, like you said, I have to enjoy the training the most. And that's usually how I pick too. Like in 2019, or actually no, at the end of 2018, I knew I was tired of doing flat runnable loop type courses. So I was like, I just had a bad race. I want to go back and fix this, but I also know I need six months where I can train for something completely different. I just trained for the San Diego hundred instead. And then when I came back, uh, to doing the flat runnable stuff again, I had my best hundred miler to date. So it's like one of those things where it's just like, you, you kind of almost need that almost like an injury <laughs> or an off yeah. season or something like that. That'll just give you a little bit of chance to kind of like miss what you were kind of getting, getting sick of. Agreed. Awesome. Uh, one race I want to ask you about is, uh, the bad water one thirty-five. Cause you've yeah. done that twice now. Am I right about that? Correct. Yeah. Twice. Uh, how, how have you, what has been your experience with that one? So, uh, it's funny because when I started ultra running, there was one race that I had no interest in and it sounded so stupid and I was not going to do it. And that was bad water. And <laughs> Um, you know, and then I think as I got more and more comfortable, like, uh, you know, all of a sudden Western States after doing it seven times, it doesn't feel like this, 
like it's unreachable or that it's um, sort of outside my comfort zone anymore. It becomes your new comfort zone. And so it's like, well, maybe now I'm a little bit more intrigued. And also through my running, I learned that I was decent in hot weather stuff. And so then it was like, well, I like roads. I like really long distance stuff. I like the heat. Bad water makes a lot of sense. I should do that. And so I went and I swore that I would only do it once. I was going to do it one time. And then of course, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I ended up, it, it's funny because I thought I was so great in the heat. And then I ended up getting heat sick. Badwater in 2018 actually was the hottest year on record. Um, it was 111 degrees at 11 PM when we started. <laughs> and um, it, it's weird to say this because obviously you can feel the heat, but somehow because it was dark and the moon was out, like I, and your sun's not on you. I just wasn't processing in my mind how astronomically hot it actually was. And so I was doing some cooling stuff, but not to the degree that I think I needed to be doing for a hundred plus degree temperatures. And so I actually did get heat sick about mile 26, mile 25, and um, was not able to eat or ingest food. And um, so I had a like a 30 mile walking period. And fortunately, when the sun came up, and I had cooled down, and like, I came back and I had this phenomenal second half, like the second half of the race was just out of the park. And I, um, at one point was more than an hour behind the leader and I ended up finishing only like 26 or 28 minutes back. And it was like, ah, oh, if mm -hmm. I just hadn't like hemorrhaged so much time in the front, like I could have won this race and I could have gone and even if I, if even, um, regardless of place, I could have been at the time goal that I wanted, you know, which was about 27 and a half hours, which I had in my mind. So then I was like, well, I got to come back now to do better. I got to come back. And so that's why I went back again. Um, the thing that I really loved about Badwater um, is, again, I think going back to that team aspect of things, you know, every race of 100 miles, you can have a crew, but you see your crew, you know, every 15, 10 miles, you know, 10, 15 miles, and you see them for this brief interlude where you're like, give me the water bottle, <laughs> throw the sunscreen on me, bye, thanks, I'm out. And Badwater, more than anything, you are so dependent on your crew. Um, you I mean, there are no aid stations. Your crew is the only thing out there for you. And you've got a pacer also for uh, like 90 miles of the race. So not only are you running with them all the time, but you know, they're stopping for you every two miles. So like, and then the, the beauty of the place was just astronomical and just unlike anything I had been to before. So I was like, all right, I, I really want to go back. I'm going to do this again and I'm going to do it better. And, um, so I did. And this year uh, I had a very phenomenal first half. <laughs> and then unfortunately <laughs> um, I ended up with shot quads coming. Uh, there's like a seven mile descent where you lose, lose about 3,500 feet of um, elevation. And, and then that was just like beat up my quads and I got massive blisters under the balls of my feet, which I've never had before. But you know, the, the blisters that are like that yeah. big and the whole bottom of your skin, skin of your feet, are falling off. And so I ended up having a really crummy last 50 miles. Um, the, the 50 K from Darwin to Lone Pine, um, took me something like 10 hours to do okay. a 50 K cause I was basically walking. So, you know, now in my head, I'm like, okay, if I could just go back and have a good first half and a good second half and put them together. So it's, it's in the back of my head to go back. Fortunately, um, this year I, I, uh, 
reveal or um, found a little bit of sanity and I'm just going back as a crew person. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask if you had crewed it before. Yeah. So I, I've crewed it in um, uh, 20, uh, 2021, I think. And then I'm crewing it again this year. Awesome. Yeah. I would think like that would be a value experience to see it from that end too, and just kind of know what your, your partners are, are up to and the, the logistics side of it and things like that. Yeah. And especially to give me some appreciation, like obviously you always appreciate anybody who's donating their time to you and there to help your efforts. But, um, I was so oblivious to what was going on in the van when I was running it. I was just there to run. And then to see it from the other side where you're like racing around and you're trying to get everything ready to see your runner and you've only got 20 minutes between every station and you've got to fill the bottles and change, you know, change their food and get all this stuff. You're like, wow, like they're really busy and they've got a lot to manage. And so um, seeing that certainly um, not only um, to give you an appreciation of how other people are running the race, but also to appreciate what the crew actually has to go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would imagine too, and this kind of like transitions into another topic I wanted to talk to you about is just like fueling on a race like that. Cause you're talking, I mean, 111 degrees at 11, at 11 at night, like that's supposed to be the relatively cool part of the day. <laughs> yeah. So like, obviously, you know, when you, when it comes to digesting things, there's digesting when you're sitting here like we are now, which is typically not that big of a deal. And then there's digesting when you're moving. And then there's digesting when you're moving and there's extreme heat and things like that. So I guess first, do you have a fueling strategy that you find works really well for you? And then do you change it in the heat at all? Um, the hotter it gets, the more I try to rely on liquid fluids. Um, I think they digest better. And I also just think that there's a struggle to get in as much, um, fluid as you can to avoid dehydration. So I try to usually stick with something like that. Um, in 2013 at Western States, I think I was using predominantly perpetuum. And then as you mentioned, like things change as you get older and <laughs> for whatever reason, like I stopped being able to drink that. Um, it just was uh, disgusting and I couldn't do it anymore. Um, so now I do a lot of the, um, goo roctane stuff and I'm not sponsored by any of these. <laughs> like, sure, no, these are just fine. what I found that, uh, <laughs> like I like, um, and so I, I like that. Um, I'm a huge fan of drinking soda during races. And then my first year, especially at Badwater, I think I went through, um, like 12 Starbucks Frappuccino, like little <laughs> bottles of, uh, of, whatever that was, you know, the, the Frappuccino mix type stuff. So anything that's really liquidy, I think it's also really refreshing when it's hot to take in that cool liquid. Um, I do a lot of root beer, a lot of, um, orange soda, orange soda is big for me. Um, and then things like, uh, gels just to me when it's hot, like, no, thank yeah. you. Like I do <laughs> not ever want to eat a hot gel ever. So, <laughs> um, and then also like with real foods, I think like when your mouth is dry and especially cause bad water, there's a lot of wind. So you're mm. very dry. Um, like chewing something like a sandwich or pretzels is just, you know, like you just don't have the saliva for mm -hmm. that. So, yeah. um, that why, that's why for me, that's sort of the liquid nutrition is sort of the base or the, the bulk of my calories when I'm running those hot weather things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would imagine too, like a race like that, you're going to try to like push to the upper limits of what your body can process with fluids too. So combining your calories with your hydration, maybe as a little more application 
in an environment like that, because you don't have to worry about, Oh, I don't need this much fluid. Now I just lost my nutrition because I'm not drinking as much of it. You're definitely going to probably be drinking all the fluids you get, but do you have a target that you're aiming for, uh, from a fluid intake standpoint? said anything specifically. Um, I, I do have to force myself to drink a little bit. Um, I definitely, um, I guess somewhere around, um, a, a liter bottle an hour is usually good for me if I'm also taking a little bit of soda at the aid station. So I'm guessing it's probably like 30 ish ounces an hour. I end up usually quite dehydrated at the end of most of my races. So mm -hmm. I know that I'm not doing a sufficient amount of replacing everything, but I find that if I go much higher than that, I get the bloated stomach. It's not digesting, maybe need to like empty it, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. have, some GI, have some GI distress. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, unfortunately I, I probably run a little bit on the low side or, or air towards the low side. Um, just because I, I can't stomach, um, literally can't stomach, um, doing much more than probably 30 ish plus ounces an, an hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that sort of makes sense actually. Cause I think like when we're looking at like upper limits of processing speeds and obviously there's going to be outliers and individuals, we can go past this, but I think like 34 ounces is usually about what you can get away with. And yeah. I wonder how much of the digestive issues in ultra running can be tied to people getting themselves in. Cause when you think about it, like 34 ounces seems like a lot when you're sitting here in air conditioning, but when you're out there on one of those hot races and you're out there all day and you're getting bored and you could easily be drinking north of that if you're someone who just is like a heavy sweater and is comfortable drinking maybe the opposite of you where they don't have a problem with drinking they're actually like more craving it or forcing themselves to do it above and beyond so I just I just wonder about that too like how many people are just like over hydrating because not because their body doesn't want it or need it because their body just can't simply process any more than what they they were putting in yeah I mean ultimately when it comes down to it right all of the upper GI distress has to be not being able to process what yeah. you put in it fast enough. So one mm -hmm. way or the other, like it's too much for what your body is able to process at the degree of effort that you're putting in at that moment. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, so you're doing mostly liquid. Do you ever try like contrasting that with something solid? Obviously like, you know, the, what you mentioned with the really, really hot races, but if it's like a cooler race, do you try to do any solid foods that are like contrast and texture and flavor and consistency and things like that? Not so much. The big one for me is I always have Pringles around. And I think sometimes that like crunchy, salty feels really good. It's not necessarily for the calories. It's more for the salt um, yeah. to have something salty. And so to contrast the flavors is the big one for me. Like, I think I just get really sick of the sweet stuff. And so then, yeah, you feel like you're crunching on something and so, or, or just regular potato chips, but I yeah. find the Pringles are, are easy for crew to hand out and, for sure and they stuff. stack perfectly <laughs> yeah um right and and they've got a, a kind of a consistency that breaks down into sort of mm. a, a easy to swallow um no sharp edges kind of thing yeah um, but no I, I i'm not one for like the really long races to you know like tuck into a big major solid real food 
type of thing. Um, mm -hmm. I'll sometimes supplement with things like fruit snacks or, or I like red licorice or whatever, some candy or something. Um, and if I get to an aid station and, you know, a bite of, of uh, grilled cheese or something looks good, I'll take it, but it's not part of the plan. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like, I mean, if I can get the calories and I feel like my stomach is, is able to handle it, like, sure, I'll eat whatever. Like, I'm not avoiding it, but I just find over the long haul, it's easier for me just to kind of stick with one thing and do it. Yeah. Well, one thing I always do with my race fuel is I'll have like a plan A and a plan B that I am pretty certain I'm going to use on a fairly regular basis. And then my plan C is just like, get to know what's at the aid stations. And then yeah. when you're heading into one, start thinking a mile or so out, like, am I craving anything specific? Because then you kind of can go in and do it. Like what you said, if like something just looks good that you wouldn't typically have, but for whatever reason, maybe, yeah, maybe you're craving some salty, some something salty. You kind of know what you can grab off of that aid station table, which nowadays are, uh, you know, pretty all inclusive for the most part. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I agree with you that I have different things that I can try, but even still they tend to stay more towards the liquid. Like it, it starts, it usually start with some sort of, um, uh, commercially available sports drink mix. And when I get sick of that, then it's soda. And then for me, I really like the creamy stuff. So like I said, the Frappuccinos, chocolate milk, um, Ensure. Uh, oh, I, I actually at Desert Solstice last year, I, I did a whole bunch of eggnog. Um, <laughs> so coconut milk eggnog. So it wasn't that, you know, too thick with the dairy. Too but, dairy, um, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, just something that you could still drink a lot of the calories. So yeah, I still have that idea that I'm going to mix it up and not be using one product the entire time. But I just know for me, like, I don't get as much um, stomach sickness as I do gag sickness from eating. Like there's just stuff I do not want to swallow and it makes me, it just makes me gag when I'm running. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, so I don't eat a lot of, of the solid food just cause I'll, I'll, I've done it probably, you know, two dozen times where I take something that looks good. I chew it, I chew it, I chew it. And then I end up spitting it out before <laughs> I swallow it because I'm like, there's no way I can swallow this, you know? Mm -hmm. And so. Um, I just know that I can't rely on those solid calories. Sure. No, that makes sense. Are you targeting a certain amount of calories per hour or is it pretty up in the air depending on the race? Yeah, I usually go for about 200 and just see if I can hang out around there. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that's usually enough to avoid that like bonk feeling. Um, and that's, I mean, I guess I'm just kind of trying to stay around there. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I think, um, what was the, the position paper, which, you know, position papers with ultra running are, are what they are essentially extrapolations for it of other research from shorter distance stuff. And then a few things that we've gathered from this research that we've been able to do on, on this crazy sport. But I think they said 50 to 70 grams is kind of the target for someone on a moderate carbohydrate diet. So at 200, you'd be right at 50, which is just kind of the low end of the range, which I would think would probably keep you from bonking for the most part. Yeah, I definitely do a little bit more um, for like 100K where the effort is a little yeah. bit higher. And also you don't have to put up with it for as yeah. long. <laughs> you know, usually by the time like 100K, I might be going closer to 300 calories an hour because I'm usually taking a gel about a gel or some fluid um, 100 calories about every 20 minutes. But towards the end of 100K, I really start to be like, okay, I'm, I'm like at my limit here. Mm -hmm. So um, I, you know, I can get away with it for that because it's, it's the higher, like I said, the higher effort you need it. And then also, because I know that it, that race is going to be over, you know, eight, eight and a half hours, something like that. So, um, I don't have to worry about, um, if I start to get sick or feel a yeah. little bit 
at, you know, seven and a half hours or something like that. Yeah. 50 milers were what kind of taught me that I knew I needed to do something a little different for a hundred miler, because I remember I'd finish 50 miler and think like, yeah, if I keep this routine up, there's no way I'm doing this again. (laughs) So I said, okay, something has to change. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I always for everything would rather be a little bit under for all of my liquids, like fluids and nutrition, because I think it's way easier to spend five minutes at an aid station to like replenish that or to take a little bit extra in than to get sick and then to have to correct your Mm -hmm. yourself once you've gotten sick. So, I mean, I try to stay on kind of on the low side of everything, salt as well, like salt pills and stuff. I don't usually take any prescribed, like I don't have a set regimen for taking um, electrolyte tablets. There's just certain times where I feel like, oh, maybe it, like maybe I'm feeling like I need one or I'm a little bit off or something like that. And then I'll take them. So I kind of stay on the low side of that too. Mm -hmm. Are you, are you eating any particular way in your day to day or is it just kind of get the right amount of fuel in and go with it type of an approach. Um, So when I was really like at my like most disciplined training and for Western States and stuff, I did um, kind of what I called carb matching. And so I would try to eat the amount of carbs that I felt would be most suited to fueling the amount of exercise that I was going to be doing the next day. And so I was pretty much eating carbs only at nighttime. And then I would eat uh, like 100 grams, 200 grams, or 300 grams, depending on what the intensity of my workout was going to be the next morning. Um, And so uh, that was like sort of the main thing. I I was never like specifically counting calories or, um, you know, like trying to restrict anything. It was more like making sure I had enough of the fuel on the, on the big days Mm because 300 grams of, you know, white rice is a, is a ginormous bowl. So like it's actually (laughs) ends up like on the days before, you know, my long runs or my, um, my long effort or hard effort races is like, oh, you almost have to put in extra, extra fuel. Um, for that. And then I do have a really big vegetable garden. And so for me, like, like making vegetables, sort of the primary focus on uh, like the plate and what I'm eating always, you know, one makes me feel good because I'm eating the stuff that I'm growing, but also um, just, I know then that I'm getting a lot of like healthy vitamins and minerals and all that other stuff that I need. So that's kind of the focus for me too, is just, I mean, I'm not a vegetarian, but I tried to keep like sort of veggie centric plating. Sure. Yeah. Someone actually, when I mentioned that I was having you on, someone told me to ask you about your garden and your enormous squash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Usually around uh, Halloween, I have like a hundred pumpkins and squash all over my porch and I try to give them to anybody that will take them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, but the other interesting thing too, about what you said too, is kind of with the the carbs on the back end type of an approach is there's been some like interesting research on like fat oxidation and there's a ton of different levers you can pull to improve your fat oxidation. And ultimately I think it comes down to like, what are your rates? Do you need to improve them or not? And if you do how much and which levers are going to be the most readily available for you to pull. And one of them was kind of what you described where it wasn't even a reduction in carbohydrate. It was simply a repositioning of them. So they were moving them later in the day and that uh, would increase fat oxidation rates from, from baseline. So it's like, 
obviously the big one is going to be just removing some carbohydrates. And then there's the whole performance part of the equation. So it comes a balancing act and also individual type of situation with that too. But it is interesting to kind of see that the different kind of interesting ways that people can kind of do stuff like that. And then when you have a sport like ours, where, you know, burning, burning fat is sort of a freebie, so to speak, in terms of not having to digest that, you know, you, you probably, maybe you put yourself in a position to be able to rely on that lower end of fueling side of things a little bit with that too. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where I came and I landed on this. I mean, it it sort of came from the idea of carb backloading, which is big in like the weightlifting community. Mm -hmm. And I don't like to use that term because it's very like it has, um, sort of this association with like trying to get muscly and and stuff. And obviously as a runner, that's not what you're trying to do, but it is this idea of getting the right amount of fuel, but kind of like you're saying with the fat oxidation and being able to run with that, um, you know, I was sort of being, uh, like low carb for 23 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Um, but for me to go no carb or to try the keto stuff, I tried it a couple of times and I was miserable with it. And maybe, (laughs) maybe if I had had the discipline to push through, but like, I felt like I was bonking on every run and I had to run super slow paces and I couldn't run with my friends anymore because I couldn't keep up. And I think I tried it twice and both times by two weeks, I was like, no, forget this. (laughs) This It's not for me. So it was like, well, where can I sort of land in the middle where I'm eating? the carbs where I feel great on my run, but like, yeah, like you said, maybe getting a little bit of that benefit where I can still like teach my body to burn some of the fat. Mm-hmm. Were, were you trying a strict ketogenic diet when you played around with it? Or were you just being a little more skewing towards fat being a primary macronutrient? Probably not strict, but like really cutting down and, and essentially doing like no, like major carb heavy foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's always I, interesting. I've very few, I've seen very few people, even the ultra running community do well on like a strict ketogenic diet. Um, but when they kind of move just a little more towards low carb, which I guess is just kind of the between (laughs) moderate and strict ketogenic, they find a little more application there. And I, I think it's probably like one is just like, when you look at just the energy output of something for someone like yourself, preparing for a race, like Western States, it's like, everything's on fast forward. So if you're sticking to these like ketogenic low 50 gram or less type protocols, it's like, that was designed for someone who's relatively stationary compared to you. So you might be burning two to three times their resting metabolic rate in a day. And then, uh, yeah, I think from a gram standpoint, there's a lot more application probably for low carb than strict keto. But like you said, I mean, I think there's always going to be some individual variability and just like the relative desire to do it versus whatever else you're doing. And for someone like yourself, you've obviously raced well. So how much fixing do you want to end up doing at the end of the day? Yeah. Well, and I think some of it comes down to too, like how much are you willing to sacrifice specifically for your athletic performance? And for me, I love dessert. I'm a dessert person, right? And so to say, <laughs> That's like, perfect I'm never for backloading, gonna, then. <laughs> yeah, I'm never going to eat any carbs again. Was like, oh god, like that's almost heartbreaking to me. So like. It also sucked a little bit of the joy out of my life. And so like Mm -hmm. the thing with the the carb matching or the carb backloading or whatever you want to call it is like, I could just um, meter out those carbs however I wanted. And if, Mm -hmm. if some of those went to a piece of cake, like, well, that was part of the plan. You know, I just had to make sure then I didn't eat as many carbs during the dinner, but I still could like figure out um, how to like get the things I wanted to eat and that I like to eat and make them fit into the plan as well. So it's not like I was eating like this 
perfectly, uh, you know, perfect meals, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there was never a treat in there. And um, for me, at least, you know, like doing the no carb or the really low carb kind of felt like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the the way you did it, it has like just enough uh, restriction that you feel like you're disciplined, but not so much that you feel like you can't keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about too, when we were talking about the hot weather races was, are you, and we can, we can maybe get into this more detail in the Western States episode, but are you doing like any sauna stuff or anything like that to prepare for those races? Yeah. So I'm a big proponent of the sauna for just about any race you do. Um, but especially for the hot races, of course, and I am almost exclusively a passive sauna person rather than an active sauna person, meaning I don't exercise in the sauna or exercise with puffy coats and Mm. all these other things that, um, like while people are doing the exercise, I do my exercise, I do my training, and then I just sit in the sauna. And I just sit there and I try to um, drink some um, and then mostly just hang out and sweat and keep my core body temperature up. Um, I think for me, like the quality of my training is better if I'm running in a comfortable environment. Um, And so I didn't ever want to do that. Um, And I don't know, like, I think there was always just this balance of like, what are you willing to do? And like run around in the summer with puffy coats just (laughs) seemed... I don't know. It just didn't seem as appealing to me as like sitting in the sauna and like reading people magazines. So that's kind of (laughs) how I did it. Um, There was, there's exactly one study that I know of that proved that this um, would work as long as you were exercising sufficiently outside of the sauna. And so that's like kind of what I hang my hat on. Um, The people who uh, like the studies that showed that active sauna time was better than passive sauna time those studies almost exclusively don't have the passive people doing any exercise outside of the the Mm. sauna. So to me, it's not comparing apples to apples because you've got a group that's doing sauna plus exercise to a group that's only doing sauna. Um, And so if you're doing the exercise outside of the sauna, like I felt like I never needed to do it inside the sauna. Um, and I was just going predominantly for, you know, like the increases of plasma volume, the changes in sweat rate, the changes in sodium loss in your sweat. And that doesn't require you to be actually exercising. So for me, mm-hmm. like it was just a time to sort of relax, maybe do some stretches or something, but I wasn't doing um, jumping jacks in, in the gym, you know, mm-hmm. in the, the sauna. No one has to worry about you pulling the stationary bike in there. And no, no, I'm not going to be doing <laughs> that. Yeah, no, it is interesting. I think like some of the protocols I've seen that I thought made the most sense was do like a workout perhaps, and then go to the sauna. So you're not compromising your training session by, you know, adding that variable of heat to it. Uh, but you are kind of upregulating everything that exercise is going to do. And then you're spending, you know, whatever, 20, 30 minutes in the sauna a few times a week for a couple of weeks before a race. And then, um, yeah, you're kind of set more or less at the, yeah. if you and want to I think doing the approach. workout ahead of time too already raises your body temperature a little bit. So when you mm-hmm. go into the, the sauna, you're kind of already primed that your body's a little bit warmer so that mm-hmm. the time that you do spend in there, you're, you're having your core temperature elevated for a longer amount. It doesn't take you 10 or 15 minutes to, to get it up to, you know, an elevated temperature. Mm-hmm. So Awesome. Um, I know this last year you were coming off a bit of an injury, if I'm not mistaken, but it seems like you've gotten through that and sort of, (laughs) I don't know. It's, it's been an interesting couple of years to say the least. That's for sure. Um, 
you know, uh, people talk about masters running starting at age 40. Um, but for me, it really like, didn't start to feel the like dramatic effects of aging until probably like 45, 46. And, um, and that's really been something that's been hard to deal with both physically and mentally. Um, and yeah, so like I said, I, I had the world uh, 24 hour championships in October of 2019 was pretty wrecked coming out of that. And just when I was starting to feel better pandemic hit and, you know, all the racing shuts down. And so I completely lost all motivation. Um, for me, I really feel like I need, um, a, a race on my schedule to be motivated to train. And when I didn't mm -hmm. have that, it was like, should I go out for four miles or 10 miles? Well, what's <laughs> the difference? Might as well just do four. And yeah. so it didn't, didn't do so hot during pandemic, um, getting in shape or staying in shape. And then as things started to open up at the end of 2020, it was like, okay, now I'm, I have a reason to get back in shape. Let's get back in shape. And I think probably just ramped up a little too fast or had gotten a little too out of shape during pandemic. And then I got, like you said, pretty injured. Um, and I had some issues with, uh, hip and other things. And I don't know, Bermuda triangle of hip <laughs> and low back and uh, upper hamstring. And it was really bugging me to the point that, uh, on New Year's Day of 2021, I actually went a quarter of a mile before I was crying and had to turn around and go back home because like I just could not move my leg without pain. So that took me a lot of time to rehab. I did about five months of rehab before I even started running again in 2021. And then, you know, then was a little bit smarter and had to come back slower and was even more out of shape. Mm. Uh, and so then between being out of shape and aging and like trying to put that all back together again, it's, it's kind of a messes with your mind <laughs> and you're like, can I do this? How good can I be? Am I too old for this? And do I really want to do this? And what's the point and all that. And so there's kind of this like psychological battle that you have to go through or that I've been going through at least. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where I'm at now. And, um, even got so frustrated with it that I ended up just taking four months off, um, like starting in October of last year and only have gotten back to running in the last like couple of weeks. Okay. Um, and so now just sort of to look at like, how can I make running fun? And, you know, hopefully I would love to get back to that, like really competitive drive. But for right now, I kind of needed a little bit of that downtime to just be like, let's just, let's just go have fun with it. So that's mm -hmm. kind of where I'm at now. <laughs> Yeah. So you're keeping races off the schedule for a little bit or is there something? Doing, I have two races that I'm doing in March um, with Tracy Falbo and she and I, I think she's gone through a little bit of the same stuff. And mm -hmm. so she and I are just going to go to a pretty place and have fun with it and not worry about times and, um, you know, try to stay together and be social and um, be touristy and eat as much as we can. This is where yeah. I'm going to eat as much as I can of solid food from the aid station. Yeah. <laughs> Give my money's <laughs> worth for once. Awesome. No, it sounds like it sounds like fun. I think sometimes too, like getting some of those opportunities where it's like, oh, I'm just gonna go and do a race, even though I know I'm not 100% ready for this is just a little bit of a reminder that there's still some value there outside of just crossing that finish line as if you were you know, perfectly peaked and everything like that. And then that keeps that, that like, uh, familiarity with these longer efforts in the back of your mind, which I think, especially after the pandemic and an injury and things like that, you know, can be helpful for when, and if you do choose to kind of really ramp things up again. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I'm I'm sitting, I think, at 92 official ultra finishes. So I thought you I have to do eight least, more. Yeah. I have to at least lollygag my way through another eight to you know <laughs> to check the box because a, a hundred finishes seems like that's that's a good goal at least for an ultra runner. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think you're probably in a very select group at that point. <laughs> awesome, Pam. Well, uh, this has been great. Is there any place that the listeners can go and find you if you're hanging out on social media or anything like that? Um, I'm, I'm not a huge social media person, but I'm probably the most active on Instagram. Um, and uh, you'll see a lot of pictures of family and uh, garden and sheep and goats and things like that. It's, it's not specifically a run centric uh, <laughs> post for me. Awesome. Well, no, that's, that's totally fine. I think sometimes seeing the the stuff that's going on outside of the running is more exciting at that time. So uh, we'll definitely put, put your Instagram handle in the show notes for those who want to check out the the garden perhaps, or the family activities. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome, Pam. We're looking forward to having you back on to, to dive into Western States prep and everything like that. And we'll have Nicole join us as she's kind of gearing up for that one this year, but I think that'll be a fun chat. Yeah. Excited and excited to see how things go for her. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners to this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a Strength Athletes Guide to Endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 